Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. All through Mark's gospel, Jesus instructs those around him not to tell anyone about his miracles. Most dismiss this pattern as the messianic secret, an attempt by Jesus to hide his true identity. When William Reed coined this phrase in 1901, he wrongly assumed what the gospel of Mark rejects, the importance of identity. In Mark, Jesus deliberately dismisses identity in favor of his sole mission, preaching and teaching. The Mark in Jesus does not care if or what people think about him. On the contrary, his only concern is whether or not people have heard scripture. So why does Jesus keep asking people not to talk about him and his acts of mercy? Because, as Isaiah proclaimed, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as a teaching the teachings of men. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark chapter 7, verses 31 to 37. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Poulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 168 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We have been working through Mark and grappling with its recurring themes And one of the most important points that Mark has made throughout the text, and it goes against the tradition of the messianic secret in Western scholarship, is this idea that God does not want lip service. He does not want people bragging about him and talking about how wonderful Jesus is and all the wonderful things Jesus did for me. And isn't Jesus so great? He does not want it. He wants people to preach scripture. People have their immortality projects, the things that they want to do with their lives. And the gospel is trying to direct that energy into something that's actually going to bear fruit for others rather than just a giant tower or an idol or establishing a religion. These are the things that Jesus is speaking against. He wants fruit that manifests Torah, that manifests the teaching that God has presented at Sinai. And this is what people need to be working towards. And you can only do so much with your mouth. You can sow the seed, but how long does Jesus sow the seed? Jesus sows the seed 10 minutes and then moves on to go sow the seed somewhere else. So either you're going to sow the seed and keep moving, 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 or you're going to be harvesting the fruit and actually producing things. But you can't just sit around and talk. Everyone is a hypocrite. This is a universal fundamental fact of the human condition. It's impossible not to be a hypocrite because the things you need to do to function as a human being are in tension with 
the precepts of the gospel. There's no way around it. You can be a hypocrite who heaps praise on the teacher and brings an apple to class, or you can be a hypocrite who puts all their energy into learning what the teacher has to say and into teaching other students. Which hypocrite is more tolerable? That's the question being posed in Mark. Because a student who comes in and heaps praise on the teacher and gives them an apple and kisses up to the teacher is deeply offensive to the teacher, to the intelligence of the teacher. You're insulting the teacher when you do that. This is what's going on in Mark. You want to brag about Jesus and how great he is, but in doing so, you insult him. The only thing that's tolerable is fruit that befits repentance. Fruit that is born out of the submission to the teaching, which forces you to acknowledge your hypocrisy and to redirect your energy to helping other people submit to the teaching. Everything else, as Isaiah says, is grass. It's vanity. It's fading away. Burn it. The only thing that doesn't fade away, the only immortality project that is worth the effort is the seed of the gospel. And in Hosea, we see this too, where the people proclaim their love for God and their repentance. And he says, as soon as the sun comes up, your love disappears like the dew on the leaves. Whatever you say you're going to be doing, it's impossible for you to sustain it because you're really rotten at the core. Your rebellion, your sin is a sickness that's deep down inside of you and only accepting Torah has a chance of healing this. But human beings always turn back. As you say, Father, they're all hypocrites. In Jeremiah, the Lord is angry because they call the house that they worship in by his name. They call it by his name and they praise him. And they think that because they call this house by the Lord's name, that everything is fine. But if they are not doing the works of the law, it's a house unto Baal. If you're not doing what Jesus commands or teaching what Jesus commands, you dishonor God with your lips when you praise him. It's classic Bible. God says, I don't want sacrifices. I want hesed. I want loving kindness. It's explicit in Hosea. I don't want your worship. Again, he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. So he's beginning again in the north in what is southern Lebanon on the modern map and moving to the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. It's the Roman domain within the region of Decapolis. So as always, Jesus is moving around, but not in Jerusalem. He's not coming to Jerusalem. He'll come to Jerusalem at the end of Mark where he will come into conflict with both the Roman Legion and the Sanhedrin. There is this military battle looming in Mark. It's not of the Messiah on behalf of the Jews against the Romans. It's of the Messiah on behalf of the Lord of Hosts against both the Romans and the Jews. They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty and they implored him to lay his hand on him. The people are coming to Jesus to get something from him. Right, this is typical. If you think of the crowds as a character, they have a habit. They always want to see Jesus perform some miracle. They want to see him perform some trick. And as you were saying in the introduction, Father, this is so typical of human beings. It's not enough for them 
to know what Jesus has done in their own personal life, but then they go and they want to listen to other people and what Jesus did in their life. And then they're going to spend another, you know, Sunday evening is not enough on Saturday evening. They want to hear about what Jesus did in their life. All the books and stories in every religion about how, oh, I came to this religion and it was coming home and it felt so wonderful and my problems were solved and my seeking was ended and da da da. They want something miraculous to happen and the crowds in Mark are the same as the crowds today. The crowds here are a mockery of the Roman system of governance because what do the Roman leaders do? Again, just it bears repeating. They appease the mob. Jesus does not appease the mob. He is constantly trying not to appease the mob because unlike Caesar, Jesus cares for the well-being of the mob. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into his ears and after spitting he touched his tongue with the saliva so again he's pulling away from the crowds he's saying okay i have work to do i want to enable you to be able to preach which means i have to heal you but i'm not interested in the fireworks show and as you said father he's not interested in appeasing the crowd oh crowd you want this man to be healed hold on a second took him away and the crowd wasn't able to watch the show. There was no show to be seen. Jesus took him aside where people couldn't see. He is helping him with his ears and his speaking because being deaf and speaking with difficulty, interestingly, these referred to citations by Isaiah that Jesus made earlier. One was about how they hear but can't hear. And in another one, it says, that people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. This brings together both of these citations from Isaiah that the author of Mark uses, and both of them have to do with how the people refuse the Torah. When they don't speak correctly, they honor him with lips. They're not actually carrying out Torah. But the other action that is discussed from Isaiah is that they hear but can't hear. The teaching bounces off their foreheads, as we say in English. It doesn't actually go in. It doesn't stay. It goes in one ear and out the other. They can't hold it inside. So we have a man here who personifies both of these issues, the inability to speak correctly and the inability to hear and understand. And keep in mind, this theme of the deaf and the dumb and the blind, this is a theme in Isaiah. It's a theme that recurs in all of the Gospels. And it's important that Jesus is always enabling people to hear Scripture, enabling them to walk according to Scripture, and enabling them to preach Scripture. It's paralysis. It's deafness. It's the inability to speak, but it's also blindness. He's always opening their eyes so that hearing they would understand, and in speaking they would speak the Word of God. You open the mouth so they can preach. You open the ears so they can hear Torah. And you open the eyes not so that they could look at beautiful statues of the gods. You open the eyes to remove the blindness, to remove the scales from their eyes. Paul talks about people who read scripture with blinders on. Jesus wants to remove those blinders so that you can actually see the truth. It's a metaphoric sight. It's not an idolatrous sight. Sin is what keeps you from carrying out Torah. And this is the sickness that Jesus is always going after. But it's not as the crowds think, that it's the action itself of healing. No, it's then what do you do with it? And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephatha, 
that is be opened. Now this word Ephatha is Aramaic. When Jesus is speaking here, he's speaking to Aramaic speakers. Before it was with a Syrophoenician woman in Tyre who probably spoke Phoenician, which is a related language to Aramaic and to Hebrew. They're all kind of in the same family. But here specifically, the author wants to call out that he's speaking Aramaic. And Aramaic is the language of the people that were there before the Greeks came to the area. And so they may have been Jews, they may have been Gentiles, but they're more likely Jews than the people who are speaking Greek. Mark wants to call this out. But to someone who knows Hebrew and Aramaic, it's very easy for them to hear this and make the link with the same root in Hebrew, which is patach, which means open. And we have this verb to open in other places, again, in Isaiah 35. So another reference obliquely here, but another reference to Isaiah. This opening, 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 opening that we have in Isaiah, and then we have this opening of the mouth of the person in Mark here. Mark keeps drawing us into Isaiah and keeps connecting with Isaiah, and I think it's important to have this opening because it's the opening of the mouth so that it can speak, you know, because Isaiah is also the one who talks about blessed are the feet of the one who proclaimed the word. So much of speaking in Isaiah is so that they can speak. Even in the passage from Isaiah we had before where they don't hear, this is from Isaiah 6. But Isaiah 6 is when the prophet Isaiah wants to speak, but before he could speak, what happens? The cherub comes and purifies his lips with a coal from the altar. His mouth has to be purified before he can speak the word. So, so much of Isaiah is being drawn from here. Mark is such an astute reader of literature that he's not stuck on what happens and what didn't happen and who did what to whom, but the theme of opening and the language around opening that's so important for what then Mark is trying to say about the preaching of the word. In chapter 7 of Mark, we are also told, and this is the tension always in the healing and the miracles and the crowds, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. There is a commandment to speak, and you are healed to speak, but you have to speak a certain thing. And Mark's frustration in the narrative, Jesus' frustration with the crowds, is that he heals them to speak the word, but they want to talk about what they want to talk about. They want to talk about how awesome Jesus is. Back to square one. And I hope the irony is not lost on our listeners, that most of modern Christianity has been reduced to a fan club for Jesus. And it's no wonder the churches are empty. Because who wants to be part of a fan club if you don't understand what it's all about? I guess that churches are full when you tell people what they want to hear, but is that a church? I mean, what are we about? It's a church to bail. A church to bail. It's a house called by my name, but I don't recognize what they're doing. That's Jeremiah 7. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah. When you refuse to understand, you're deaf and dumb. You have wax in your ears. You can't speak. You're blind by choice. This man, though, has been unbound, and now he's speaking plainly. One plus one equals two. Speaking Torah plainly instead of confusing it with other things that they think are also important. And here comes Isaiah again. Jesus does not want lip service. And he gave them orders not to tell anyone. 
But the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. Because their priority is incorrect, they are not interested in the growth of the loaf. They are interested in the growth of the crowd. It all fits together. And what's really powerful about this literature, Richard, is that it is timeless. It feels almost shocking how well it applies to modern Christianity. But the fact that this was written in late antiquity tells me not that it's a fortune cookie, but that the Christians in the first century were as bad as the Christians today. They're doing the same thing. Everybody wants to talk about Jesus and how great Jesus is and how much they love Jesus, but nobody wants to deal with what he said. Even worse, they directly contradict what he said. Don't tell anyone. And the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. The more he told them to do X, the more they did the opposite. How is this different from Adam and his sin? This is the root of sin right here. The more Jesus says to do something, they do the opposite. So how can you say you're loyal to Jesus? That is the opposite of loyalty. And what's really ingenious about this setup is that you are being disloyal when you praise him, which is the prophets. Your incense is like a stench in my nostrils, proclaims Isaiah. I have no interest in your God and country songs, cries Amos. I don't care. The more you praise me and ignore the stranger and the widow and the fatherless, the more you condemn yourself by praising me. That's the thing. And when people go to church and feel at peace because they sang a doxology, they missed the point. Because in the doxology, in the liturgy, you claim that this God is the God of your fathers, which is a double hit. Number one, you claim that you submit to the teaching when you claim that this God is the God of your fathers. Who says Abraham is your father? You're making that claim, but we have to see whether he's the God of your fathers. That's number one. Number two, in scripture, the fathers whom you claim were condemned anyways, Jesus tells us. So understand the function of praise is to consign you to judgment. Glory to God who's shown us the light. Okay, he showed you the light. Are you now walking in the light or are you walking in darkness? This is the judgment. Glory to God who has shown us the light. Let's swing by the bar after church and watch the game. And talk about the light. Instead of swinging by the homeless shelter or stopping at the soup kitchen or going to visit a shut-in, let's go watch football. Now, we all know that we're all hypocrites. And it's impossible to always go to the food shelter because you're incapable. You lack the energy and the zeal. If you can't admit that to yourself, in Deuteronomy, God will throw you out of the land because he wants humility, not self-righteousness. That is the function of sin. The function of sin in the Torah is to put you in your place and to make you realize as you enter into the land that just like God took out all the Canaanites who he's wiping out before your eyes, he can take you out as well. Here we're seeing in Mark that you can't but rebel against God. It's a very powerful, powerful metaphor once you understand what's happening, Rich. They were utterly astonished, saying he has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. So if Jesus has done all things well, why not follow what he told you? Which is, don't go and serve me with your lips. Why not go and take actual actions that will provide real fruit instead of talk, 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 your vain talk? 
this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as a teaching the teachings of men. Thanks very much, Dr. Ben. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.